Hello, everyone, and welcome to the September 29th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Fols, an attorney with Floyd, Skarn and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. So let's get started with our litigation report. A new WCAB panel decision concluded that the UR process is applicable to treatment requests made by the employer's MPN physicians. Here's what happened in the case of Stock versus Camarillo State Hospital. Alan Mulliken, MD, a member of the State Funds MPN, recommended that applicant Rochelle Stock be furnished with a hospital bed for her home as treatment for her admitted 1990 industrial injury. The request was denied after a May 13, 2014 review by Daniel Weinberg, MD, of EK Health, the State Funds Utilization Review Reporter. At a hearing brought to obtain this recommended care, Stock objected to the admission of the UR report, claiming it was inadmissible because the treatment denied was recommended by a physician inside the employer's medical provider network. The work comp judge ruled the UR report was admissible and denied the request for this medical treatment in a June 20, 2014 finding and award. After removal of the case to the WCAB, it affirmed the work comp judge's findings and award and agreed that applicants required participation in her employer's MPN does not prohibit the state fund from referring an MPN physician's request for authorization of medical treatment to UR and then to independent medical review. The WCAB concluded that by its adoption of the MPN system, the legislature did not evidence and intent to preclude a defendant from seeking UR review of an MPN physician's request for authorization of medical treatment. The law and the implementing administrative rules provide mechanisms for review of disputed treatment recommendations through, through UR whether or not the treating physician is in the employer's MPN. When a defendant does not approve a treatment request from applicant's primary treating physician, the defendant must refer the request to a UR physician. Here, Dr. Mulliken's request that applicant be provided a hospital bed was clearly intended to provide applicant relief from the effects of her industrial injury under the terms of her award of further medical treatment. She has had a two-level lumbar fusion, suffers from radiculopathy grade 2, spondylolisthesis with instability, and formal stenosis at two levels above the fusion. Applicant cannot sleep on a flat bed and has been sleeping in a recliner. She has been trying to obtain a hospital bed for four years. In all of that time, she has not been able to enjoy a restful night's sleep. The UR denial of the request for a hospital bed was based upon silence in the MTUS guidelines and the absence of high quality studies and no exceptional factors in the documentation submitted to consider this request as an outlier to the guidelines. Thus, there is no other documentation to support the medical necessity of a hospital bed. As such, the medical necessity of the request has not been established and the request is therefore not certified. But the WCAB noted that there is a hierarchy of standards to be applied to a review of the medical necessity of a request for approval of medical treatment under the rules. 
if the MTUS is silent and there is no peer-reviewed scientific and medical evidence, the reviewer may consider nationally recognized professional standards, expert opinion, generally accepted standards of medical practice, and treatments that are likely to provide a benefit to a patient for conditions for which other treatments are not clinically efficacious. It does not appear that the UR denial considered in this case whether other standards may be applicable as there was insufficient documentation or explanation provided to support the request of Dr. Molokine's medical bed. Thus, further review of this request will be by independent medical review. And now our fraud report. A Los Angeles County probation officer was arrested for allegedly filing false workers' compensation documents. Cynthia Wesley, a detention officer assigned to Central Juvenile Hall, was arrested on one count of filing a fraudulent insurance claim and one count of falsifying workers' compensation documents. She was booked into Temple City Sheriff's Station and was released on $60,000 bail. Wesley's disability claim was labeled as suspicious by county probation investigators last May. A closer look by both probation and California Department of Insurance investigators revealed that Wesley allegedly manufactured some of the claim forms she submitted to a supplemental disability insurance company to get benefits the department says she was not entitled to receive. Officials have noticed concern about the abuse of workers' compensation and disability policies among county probation officers and have initiated measures to deal with any abuse. The FBI warned healthcare providers to guard against cyber attacks after one of the largest U.S. hospital operators, Community Health Systems, said that Chinese hackers had broken into its computer networks and stolen the personal information of four and a half million patients. And the FBI says that your medical information is worth 10 times more than your credit card number on the black market. Cyber criminals are increasingly targeting the $3 trillion U.S. healthcare industry, which has many companies still reliant on aging computer systems that do not use the latest security measures. And the healthcare industry is becoming a much riper target because of the ability to sell large batches of personal data for profit. Hospitals have low security, so it's relatively easy for these hackers to get a large amount of personal data for medical fraud. The data for sale includes names, birth dates, policy numbers, diagnostic codes, and billing information. Criminals use this data to create fake IDs to buy medical equipment or drugs that can be resold. Or they combine a patient number with a false provider number and file made-up claims with insurers. Medical identity theft is often not immediately identified by a patient or their provider, giving criminals years to milk such credentials. Consumers sometimes discover their credentials have been stolen only after fraudsters use their personal medical ID to impersonate them and obtain health services. When the unpaid bills are sent on to debt collectors, they track down the fraud victims and seek payment. 
that makes medical data more valuable than credit cards, which tend to be quickly canceled by banks once fraud is detected. Stolen health credentials can go for $10 each, or about 10 to 20 times the value of a U.S. credit card number. The percentage of healthcare organizations that have reported a criminal cyber attack has risen to 40% in 2013 from 20% in 2009. Fueling that increase is a shift to electronic medical records by a majority of U.S. healthcare providers. The former owner of a Long Beach medical supply company was sentenced to serve 30 months in prison and ordered to pay nearly one and a half million dollars in restitution for his role in fraudulent claims to Medicare. 55-year-old and Cola Afolabi of Long Beach was the owner and president of a DME company known as Emanuel Medical Supply. Afolabi provided medically unnecessary power wheelchairs and other medical equipment to Medicare beneficiaries and submitted fraudulent claims to Medicare for this equipment. Afolabi admitted that he paid marketers to obtain beneficiary information that he used on the false claims. He also admitted that prescriptions for the equipment were fraudulent and that some of the beneficiaries did not even receive the wheelchairs or other medical supplies that were billed. The case was investigated by the FBI and was brought as part of the Medicare Fraud Strike Force, supervised by the Criminal Division's Fraud Section and the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Central District of California. And in regulatory news, the DWC has filed the amendments to the hospital outpatient departments and ambulatory surgical centers fee schedule regulations with the California Secretary of State. The amendment corrects the payment methodology formula set forth in Section 9789 for services rendered after September 1, 2014. Labor Code Section 5307.1 provides that the maximum facility fee for services performed in a hospital outpatient department shall not exceed 120% of the fee paid by Medicare for the same services. But SB 863 provided that for ambulatory surgical center services rendered after January 1, 2013, the maximum facility fee shall not exceed 80% of the fee paid by Medicare. Effective January 1, 2013, the DWC amended the fee schedule to implement Senate Bill 863 as it relates to this part of the fee schedule. But in March of 2014, the division initiated a rulemaking action to amend the fee schedule to correct some problems. The amendment corrects the payment methodology for other services that are paid according to the RB, RVS practice expense relative value units and is effective on September 1 of this year. The changes to the medical provider network regulations also are now in effect. The DWC is now required to assign a unique MPN ID number to each approved MPN within 90 days. The ID number for each approved MPN can be found on the DWC website. An MPN ID number has been assigned to all MPNs that have been approved regardless of their current approval status. 
The DWC will no longer accept paper submissions of MPN applications, plans for reapproval, or notice of medical provider network plan modifications. All submissions to the DWC must be on compact disks or flash drives in a Word searchable PDF format. The updated fillable forms can be found online. MPNs must now comply with the new regulations and be prepared to provide the DWC with an explanation of how they are complying with the new regulations if requested. For example, MPNs should be able to provide the URL to their internet website and their roster of treating physicians. MPNs should also be able to provide MPN medical access assistant contact information. The DWC is currently updating the MPN FAQs and will post the revision FAQs soon. And in medical news, a new study by the University of North Carolina School of Medicine concludes that individuals living in disadvantaged neighborhoods have worse musculoskeletal pain outcomes after time, over time after accidental trauma than individuals from higher socioeconomic status. The results of the study were published online by the medical journal Pain. Since apportionment under SB 899 is based upon causation, medical evaluators may wish to consider this study when determining the actual cause behind the AMA Guide's pain add-on rating. The investigators studied 948 individuals who presented to emergency care centers in four states for evaluation after automobile accidents. These participants received follow-up evaluations at six weeks, six months, and 12 months. Approximately 90% of the participants completed follow-up at each time point. Information regarding each participant's neighborhood environment was determined by geocoding their home address to a census tract. A census tract is the smallest unit for which population data is available in the U.S. census tract data that was used to determine neighborhood socioeconomic status. This index calculates percent of unemployment, percent below the U.S. poverty line, percent with high school education or less, percent of expensive homes in the neighborhood, and median household income. Living in a more disadvantaged area was found to increase pain burden in the months after the automobile accident. Results remained significant after adjustment for receiving opioids at the time of emergency care, litigation status, obesity, at-risk drinking habits prior to the accident, and mental health status prior to the accident as well. Researchers say this finding suggests that the increased stress of living in a disadvantaged neighborhood affects biological systems in the body in ways that increase pain and worsen pain outcomes. These results also add further evidence that stress systems are involved in the development of chronic pain. This research was supported by a grant from the National Institutes of Health. In physical injury cases, SB 863 precludes permanent disability awards that add on 
the effects of psychiatric consequences of a physical injury. It is unclear how far this new law will apply to what begins as a physical injury that is later complicated by a mental rather than a physical cause. And a new fibromyalgia study that points to mental health mechanisms as part of causation of this diagnosis may further complicate matters. The new research claims that brain scans showed that people with the pain disorder fibromyalgia react differently to what others would consider non-painful sights and sounds. This finding provides clues as to what might be going wrong in the nervous system of people with fibromyalgia, along with possible new approaches to alleviating their pain. Fibromyalgia affects as many as 5 million Americans, most commonly middle-aged women. Its cause is unknown, and there is no cure, but medications can treat the symptoms. The new study suggests not only that fibromyalgia is related to greater processing of pain-related signals, but also potentially to a misprocessing of other types of non-painful sensory signals that may be important to address during treatment. These findings provide further support for the idea that psychological strategies aimed at changing the focus of attention from the body to external cues could be useful for these patients. People with fibromyalgia often also have conditions like depression, so some people believe the disorder has a mental basis. But evidence for a neuroanatomical basis for fibromyalgia is growing. More recent research done on persons with fibromyalgia suggests that persons with this disorder suffer from a central processing deficit of multiple types of sensory stimuli, not just pain. That might help explain why many people with fibromyalgia also often suffer from fatigue, cognitive problems, or mood disturbance. Currently, people with the disorder can take anticonvulsant medications such as Lyrica and antidepressants such as Cymbalta and Savella, which have been FDA approved for treating fibromyalgia. Further research to improve understanding of where there are problems in the brain for people with the disorder could lead to the development of new treatments. Thus, the evolving scientific concepts of the roots of fibromyalgia may be a precursor to use of the SB863 limits on psychiatric add-ons to lower permanent disability awards in fibromyalgia cases. And in other news, the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare, continues to defy Californians who remain skeptical four years after its passage, despite the state's relatively smooth launch. More than 1.2 million people have now enrolled in the health insurance coverage. But a new survey by the Public Policy Institute of California found some 42% of state residents generally view the law favorably, while 46% harbor unfavorable opinions. Support is down somewhat since May, before a wave of targeted TV ads began in a handful of competitive congressional districts. Democrats view the law positively, while an overwhelming majority of Republicans, 80%, see it unfavorably. Of the one in five Californians who say that they were aided by the law, 
31% say that it allowed them or a family member to obtain or retain health care. Meanwhile, of the one in five who say they have been harmed by the law, more than half reported it led to higher costs, while about 20% say it made it more difficult to get coverage. The city of Santa Monica reports a 12% increase in its annual workers' compensation costs that continue to rise as the city spent $6.9 million on injured employees last year. Costs grew about $850,000 over the previous year. And claim frequency remains high, and older city employees in physically demanding jobs are experiencing more severe injuries. These older employees are requiring costly and intensive medical treatment, like back surgeries and knee replacements. Most of the city's administrative costs stayed the same, with the exception of legal costs, which rose 11%. If the worker hires legal representation, city officials said they in turn are required to hire their own counsel. Medical costs made up $3.6 million worth of total costs. Lost wages and residual impacts from injuries compromised, com comprised another $3.3 million of costs. About half of this was for temporary disability, while the other half covered permanent disability awards. There were 86 claims settled last fiscal year, compared to 55 settlements in the prior year. Risk management staff expects the city's workers' compensation costs to continue to rise. City officials have saved some money by making some changes in their system. They are, for example, returning injured workers to modified positions while they recover. This saved nearly a quarter million dollars, according to their report. The city also revamped the medical bill review process and selected a new medical bill review provider this past year. The new provider enables the city to obtain better pricing on medical procedures through accessing more cost-effective insurance plans. City officials say this move saved between $100,000 and $200,000. That is all of our news and our events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.